Okay, this morning, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, as we are coming to the end of this book. Last week and this week, I'm parking on a, a passage of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5, let me read verse 6 through verse number 9 this morning, and I'll focus in on verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit and be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we come before the Word of God, we know that the Word of God has been given to us by you. It is the revelation that you have given about yourself and about your plan, about what Christ has done, about what the Spirit of God is doing in our lives. And, Lord, it also teaches us about the enemy who's against us, who's still alive and well here on this earth. And I just pray, Lord, as we live as Christians, that we would realize that we are in a struggle. We are in a place where we have to resist and know how to do it. So, Lord, don't, make it, don't let us be uh, comfortable in knowing what we know. Don't allow us to be ignorant about what the scriptures say, but allow us to grow to the place where we realize we're soldiers in Christ. And a soldier is not somebody who just sits on a bench or in the, in the background is someone who knows how to use his weapon to fight the enemy, both defensively and offensively. So, Lord, as we look at this passage, give us a sense, an understanding of how that works out in our life. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this passage, verse number nine, the first part of verse number nine, I've been kind of stuck on from last week and this week, because remember, the whole scope of 1 Peter, uh, Peter has been laying out, at least in this last section, three things, that exhortation uh, while experiencing in the area of suffering, an exhortation for humility, an exhortation for vigilance, and of course, uh, this morning and last week, a, the Christian's obligation or the exhortation for resistance in which we have an obligation to resist. Now, I have already covered the first and second exhortations. The, one, the first one, the exhortation of humility given in, in light of God's constant care, us casting our care upon the Lord because he cares for us. And then, of course, the exhortation of balance or vigilance, to be vigilant, giving in the backdrop of Satan's dubious character. And this morning, we are continuing looking at this obligation and exhortation of resistance. And I said that if you and I grasp the logic of the first and the second exhortation, stability, victory, will be obtained over Satan's strategies and tactics. If you ever observe animals, they're always cautious. Ever, Ever look at a squirrel? They're popping their head up every few seconds, right? Looking around. And, and the reason for that is because they're listening to every little thing because they know they have enemies. Animals are always looking around for danger. When you consider an African gazelle, when they stop at a wilderness watering hole to take a quick drink of water, see how they listen and then they drink. One in particular seems to appear to be an outlook or somebody who's looking out for the rest of them. Then comes a sound, 
a twig snaps, the presence of a, a potential enemy is known, and the herd moves like a shot. It flees like the wind. Seconds later, it could have been fatal. Because of their quick response, lives are saved because they were sober and alert, and they remained that way. So all animals have enemies, mice as well as large elephants. Christians also have enemies in which they need to be alert and sober. The church has to know its enemies, especially the enemy, and not be ignorant of the unseen spiritual realm. Remember, things that are unseen are more real than the things that are seen, and Christians ought to learn that. It was a pastor, Steve Lawson, who concerned about the Christian faith under Satan's relentless fire, rightly cautions believers, and I mentioned this last time about this. He said, mark it down. Every Christian has a real enemy. Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. He is constantly attacking and accusing you, intent on destroying your life. Spiritual warfare is a fact of life as long as this enemy is alive and well on planet Earth. So remember, though Satan is against us, he is not all-knowing. He cannot be present everywhere. He is stronger than us, but he is not God. He is nowhere near who God is, even though he wants to make himself present himself that way. He is a created being in which God has full authority over, and he is under judgment and will is heading towards his final demise. So Satan is looking upon his various plans to carry out his dominion in the world. He has his sights on anything and anyone who will get in his way. Anyone who honors God most and is serious about serving him Satan will struggle with that person. In other words, Satan views God's people as a hindrance to his reign. So he contrives methods by which he may remove them out of his way or get them to work on his behalf. He and his whole host of inferior spirits under his control, are trying to get the faithful ones to fail. He cannot get your soul anymore, but he can get you to fail. Therefore, all the servants of God will more or less come under the direct or indirect assaults of the enemy. So from our text, if the devil is a slanderer and deliberately advances false charges against God and his people... What are Christians to do? That's where I kind of ended last time. What, what are they to do when they're confronted by the enemy? Are they to cast him out? No. Are they to rebuke him? No. Are they to exercise him? No. Are they to bind him? No. Believers are not exhorted to do any of these things in this passage. However, They are exhorted in Scripture to do something. They are to notice in our text, in verse number 9, but resist him. That's what we are called to do. Now, what does that actually mean, and how do we do that? Well, resist him in the faith. In fact, Peter, James, and Paul are all in agreement on this issue of what to do with him. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then, of course, Paul says in Ephesians 6, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in, the evil, in that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So the Christian must have a definite plan for resisting the enemy of their soul. They must learn and then practice resisting. Pastor Lawson again comments on James 4 where he says the word resist is a military word which means to stop or to hinder the progress of the adversary. 
If we are to resist Satan, we must stop his attempts to destroy us before we are harmed. So how are we to stand against our enemy? Again, I started out giving five ways to resist the enemy. I looked at the first way, and the first way is to resist him. And then notice in our text, it says, firm in your faith, firm in your faith. In other words, God has given us a detection system, making it possible for us to be aware of Satan's evil methods, his schemes, his lies, and to resist him. Resist means nothing less than fight him. Submit is God word. Resist is Satan word. One comes before the other. You can't reverse that. And why is that? Because a Christian who resists the devil must do so in the spirit with the word of God. One never should think that they can approach Satan in the flesh and expect him to flee. In our text here, 1 Peter, in the original, the Greek actually says to resist him in the faith. The definite article is connected there, which indicates a, a body of doctrine or of beliefs to which the Christian ought to adhere. This faith also includes the Christian's trust and confidence in God and in Christ and the system of teaching that has been given to us by God in the Bible, in the Scriptures. So Christians are to resist the enemy by standing in this body of true doctrine and beliefs, which really leads the believer to a strong actually leads us to strong convictions and, and of course, uh, a continual desire to want to know more of what the Word of God says until we are trusting God more and more every single day of our lives. In this way, believers are not led away into apostasy despite the temptations and persecutions brought against them by the enemy. He knows how to beat someone down. He knows how to trap someone, and he spends much time trying to do that to believers. He, always, he already has everyone else. So again, this alarm system is the faith. The system of teaching, again, given to the Christian by God in the Scriptures. Now, many Scriptures support the idea of using the faith to resist Satan. Now, I mentioned those again last week, but let me put them up there again. And notice in each one of these passages of Scripture, you see that each one talks about, for example, in Jude, contending earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints, where there's this struggle of contending with something, like a fighter contends with his opponent. And then in Philippians, it talks about that I, I hear that standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then, of course, Colossians continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. And then, of course, 1 Timothy 4, where Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Now, some may say, well, then why does our translation here include your faith? Because remember, your italicized is not in the original. They're trying to make an interpretive point here. I believe the reason why they leave your in the passage is because the faith is the body of truth given to the church. But it must become our faith. We must believe it. We must internalize it. It must be ours to fight the enemy with. It must be transforming our minds. It must be showing us how to be holy and godly. It must be driving out all the old sin and the remaining corruption we have and replacing it with righteous behavior. That is what it's doing. So from these passages of Scripture, 
we see the faith means that system of doctrine which comes out of God's revealed word. And truly, as Christians learn scriptural truth, they become stronger in the faith and in the conviction that God will never leave them or forsake them, that God is true and everyone else is a liar, especially the enemy. God's truth is light, which will expose Satan's dark mixture of lies and half-truths. And because Satan is the master scripture twister, because he is that, the Christian must fill his mind with the word of God so that it bends his and her thinking away from the worldly thinking that they are used to and their own bad thinking that they had before becoming a believer and move it toward the way God wants us to think. Like Paul said to the Romans, that he do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind, that you would know that you may prove what, is, what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So by developing convictions based on the study of God's word, the believer is able to cling to the truth in the face of spiritual attack. So practically, if one is going to resist the devil, the resistance will be in and because of a well-grounded faith based on Scripture. Daniel Arichia mentions that the term resist can be expressed as don't give in to the devil or don't do as the devil suggests. Martin Lloyd-Jones additionally warns believers the devil often changes his methods. So see, for us to be grounded in Scripture is also for us to be ready to detect when he does change his methods. So we resist him only in the truth. And as we submit to God and stand in his strength, then the devil flees from us. For a season, he'll be back, and he'll be back with a different temptation. He'll be back with a different twist of truth. He'll be back either at your strongest or at your weakest, but he will be back. And so that will become a test of how well we can detect when he is back. So until then, get ready by growing in the truth so that you can be more skillful with the sword of the Spirit to resist his attempts to get you to doubt God's word, to lay it aside, to ignore it. And don't ever forget, believers, you are no longer under the dominion of Satan. He is no longer your supposed master. Christ is. And greater he who is in you than he who is in the world. Robert Spiney said this, God's recipe for right living begins with right thinking. We are better equipped to thwart the adversary when we are nourished by sound doctrine. Seems like a bad word today, sound doctrine. But it is a good word. It means healthy doctrine. It means doctrine that rises up from Scripture and is taught to his people as good food that can nourish our soul and make us spiritually healthy. So living in and for the truth has a jagged edge to it. God does not promise us here on this earth, health, wealth, and that everything will be fine, well, and dandy. You don't find that in Scripture because we are, and, and we don't find it in Scripture just because we're kingdom kids that we deserve those things. No, living for and proclaiming the truth will put the world, the flesh, and the demonic realm against the disciples of Jesus Christ. 
But we are armed. We, have a, we, have a, we can be armed with the word of God. We can be armed with the, with the ways that we can resist him. So as we come to the end of 1 Peter, I would like to be more on the practical end of things this morning about the second particular point on how to resist him. We resist him in the truth. That's the overwhelming point. But the second way we resist the adversary is by discerning strengths, weaknesses, and tendencies towards sin. Now, I mean that in this way, that you and I are to be discerning our own strengths, our own weaknesses, and our own tendencies towards sin. In other words, when, when you become a believer, God really does turn the light bulb on to, to allow you to turn around and look at yourself and observe what you're doing and how you're thinking and then make appropriate changes based on Scripture that things do not please God or things do please God. And so it was Paul who told Timothy this in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on your, how you live and on your teaching, stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. So if the enemy knows how to tempt a person according to that person's remaining corruption, and if Satan understands thoughts and imaginations and secret ambitions and intentions and even motives, then the believer must remain specifically alert about their own unique makeup. How did God make you? Every one of us is different. Even when a parent is raising a child, you you quickly realize and observe that each one of your children are different. They're bent different. They're bent different even to sin. One child will sin this way. Another child will not sin in that way at all, but sin in a completely different way, right? So we're to observe the bent, the way of our children, so we can steer them away from their natural bents to sin. That's part of the job of the parent. And so when we do that and we become Christians, we have to look at our own life, that we have to look at our own makeup on how God made us. In other words, we have to be more self-aware. If Satan can suggest ideas to the Christian's mind and inflame the believer's affections with desires that stand in opposition to godliness and holiness and spiritual growth, then while taking the devil seriously, you must understand what parts of your life deserve special attention and caution. I remember one thing that struck me as I was growing in Christ's likeness and understanding of Scripture of how much a sinner I was. It was appalling to me that the things I thought were not sin, I saw now as sin because of the word of God. I think every believer comes to that place. Instead of them pointing the finger at somebody else for something going wrong in their life, they start pointing the finger at themselves and saying, the reason I have these problems in my life is because of me, because of the way I've been dealing with and the sinful way I've been dealing with, and the dishonoring way I've been dealing with, and not been listening to the word of God to just lay aside those things as I ought to do as a believer so God and his spirit can transform me and make me what he wants me to be. So believers, as they grow in their knowledge and wisdom of Jesus Christ, they also become more self-aware. And as they... as they are exposed to more and more of the Scripture. One area they become aware of is their own pattern of sin. They want to live a life pleasing to the Lord. So they begin to struggle with their sin in order to lay it aside and replace it with righteous behavior. That's where God brings us. If I say, if I ask you today a question, listen, raise your hand if you want to please God in your life. I would say that most Christians would raise their hand. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. All right. 
All right, so that, that's one thing. But at the same time, you know there's conflict in your life. You know there's remaining sin. You know some things you're not doing right in your life. You know very clearly you need to lay something aside and you haven't done it yet. And that very thing is the very thing that God will stop everything in your life until you take care of that. And often that's where trials and suffering come in. Trials and suffering seem to bring those things that remain in our life to the surface of our heart so we can scoop it off and throw it away as not being good for any kind of spiritual, nutritious value. And we throw it off and we put on Christ. We put on righteousness. So what I'm talking about actually is concerning the enemy is is that he is going to tempt us. He cannot make us sin, but he surely can tempt us to sin. And and this becomes a, a... something a believer needs to think about, and that's temptation. Now, just take your Bibles real quick and turn back to just one passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, and then I'm going to look at Hebrews 12, verse 1, just to bring you to the place of just thinking about temptation. Temptation is, is one of the most familiar experiences of the child of God. No one can escape from temptation. In fact, some saints are greatly troubled because they are tempted to think they must be so wicked because they're tempted to sin. You ever think like that? Why am I always being tempted in this one area? And you think, man, I must be really wicked. But really, really, just remember this. To be tempted is not sin. Sin is yielding to the temptation. Right? So that's got to be clear in your mind when it comes to this subject of temptation. We cannot stop birds flying over our heads, but we surely can stop them from making a nest in in our hair. And likewise, we cannot stop evil thoughts from passing through our minds. But we need to not entertain them or accept them or dwell upon them. That's going to be the difference. Temptation will come from from this day to the day you die. There will be some temptation that's going to come your way. But you'll learn how to deal with it as a believer. And you know that I cannot entertain these thoughts anymore. I cannot accept these thoughts anymore. I cannot especially dwell upon them anymore. I cannot let them get to the point where I'm imagining things in my mind. And I'm playing it within my mind. Now, this scripture, just quickly, uh, that we're looking at is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says this, no scripture, or no temptation, excuse me, has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now, in this passage, there is a load limit to to temptation. We live in an area where we see signs on bridges that say load limit 10 tons. Now, that sign really means that heavier vehicles must take a detour or go another way, find a stronger bridge, or either lighten your load and pass over safely. Thank the Lord, he knows our load limit. He knows how much we can take, how much pressure or strain, we can actually withstand. And just when we think, just when we think we will, weak, we, we will weaken and sin, he removes the pressure and makes a way of escape. He gives us a way out. Someone asked the little girl what she did when temptation comes. And she replied, temptations are like Satan knocking at my heart. When I see him there, 
I asked Jesus to answer the door. That's not bad advice. See, you're going, in other words, to the Scripture, to what God requires to be able to fight against the temptation. That's why I'm saying it starts with that body of truth given to us. We have to know God's Word. And then when we know God's Word, we can actually resist temptation. And when we do fall into sin, we, we know what to do with that too. We confess it, we forsake it, and of course, we know God by the power of the cross cleanses us from all our sin and unrighteousness. Now, Hebrews is another passage of Scripture I want you to consider this morning and think about it because there's, there's two general areas to pay attention to when it comes to dealing with temptation and spiritual attacks, and those two general areas are found in Hebrews chapter 12, at least the middle of the verse, and we should play, really pay close attention uh, and then be deliberate about being responsible to lay those things aside. And it says in Hebrews 12, in verse number 1, the middle of the verse, it says, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, so the context in Hebrews 12 is that a Christian is growing and understanding that the Christian life is like a marathon race, right? In that race, you have to prepare so you can not necessarily be first in the race, but just finish the race. That's the point. I finish the race. You want to finish the race. Well, in finishing the race, we consider two things in our passage, and the two things are, are this. The first one is weights or encumbrances, all right? And this is just, this is, not, this is not necessarily sin. It is something that holds you down from running the race. It's this extra body weight that uh, a, somebody who's in some kind of rigorous training needs to remove so they can move faster, especially a runner. So you must strip off everything that impedes performance as a believer. If you are to travel far, you must travel light. And before you were a Christian, these are the things you did. You didn't, these are the things you did but didn't necessarily hinder you. But now you're, you're the, in this Christian race, they hinder you and they need to be discarded. And a hindrance is something otherwise good that weighs you down spiritually, that needs now to be put off. Now, these things could uh, that you need to discard could be simply things like bad habits or habits. It could be your desire just to want to be uh, have leisurely fun all the time. Maybe you're spending too much time on Facebook or blogging or the Internet. Maybe you are you crave certain entertainment that is no longer appropriate for a believer. Maybe you desire prosperity and gain secretly in your heart. That's your motive for living is to get more money, to get more power, to get more gain. Now, those, of course, things would be sinful too. Maybe just worldly ease, desiring to take the path of least resistance. Maybe your associations with certain groups or clubs or friendships or other people need to be put off from your life. So these are all weights that may keep us back from being the best we can in the race. So we must shed them as an athlete sheds his track suit when he goes to the starting mark. But there's, there's another thing in this passage, and it's, that, it's this. It's that of laying aside sins. Notice what it says, and the sins which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. So... What, what must we do here? We must put off every sin that hampers and easily entangles. Now, this could be any sin in particular, any sin in particular to you, any sin that easily entangles you. And so you have to ask yourself, and we really do have to ask ourselves this question, uh, 
And of course, it is the question is, what is the sin that so easily ensnares me? What is, what is that one thing that I know, as soon as a temptation pops up, bam, I'm considering it. I'm thinking about it. It could be that of anger. It could be that of hatred or, or just being lazy. It could be that of covetousness or envy or lust or complaining or grumbling or slander or gossip or hypocrisy, pride, unthankfulness, greed, unbelief. I mean, the list goes on. And if you notice in, in all these passages, I know a lot of text on that screen there, but in all these passages, I want you to notice one thing, the, the thing I have highlighted on. What are we to do? What is it? that we are doing all these passages, we are to lay aside and leave behind these particular sins. In Romans, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And then in Colossians, it says we are... It says, but now you also put them all aside. What are we to put aside? Anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices and that you put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And then in each other one, it's the same thing. We are to lay aside, we are to put aside, we are to put aside. Now, we are to do that. That means also that a Christian has the ability to do that. God's given us the ability to do that. He's given us the strength to do that in the spirit, to actually put those things aside. All these old sins put aside. And that sin that so easily, when tempted, is going to beset us, is going to ruin our race. We need to put that one aside specifically. So this race that we're in is far more important than you think because it has eternal consequences to this race. Everything, everything that handicaps you must be cast off and laid aside so that you are not needlessly hindered to run at peak performance to be Christians who are running at peak performance. Now, saying all those things brings me to this, just fleshing out a bit of what this Hebrews 12, 1, this sin that so easily entangles us, to try to, to get some kind of understanding of how it all works out. In other words, identifying your patterns of sin. Now, let me just give some examples of each one. A pattern of sin is one you habitually are drawn to. It's this one area that you are weak in, that you can be easily tempted in. as the book of Hebrews calls them, what are the sins that so easily trip you up? What are they? Can you name them right now in your mind? What's one thing? Bammo. Tomorrow you're going to get up, you're going to go into your day, and you're going to be tempted with that. I know there's something you're thinking with. That's the thing you take care of. And, of course, once you take care of that, you learn to put it aside, there'll be something else that pops up in your heart, and then something else, because God doesn't give us the whole horror story at once of what's going on in your heart and what's remaining there. He doesn't do it all at once, right? It probably would be the worst horror flick you ever saw if he just presented the wickedness that you have in your heart. So there's patterns of sin that come up. It is also important to be aware and sensitive to your own proclivities to that sin so that you can take the first steps in building a defense against your particular area of vulnerability. Human beings have a staggering capacity for self-deception and self-justification. 
We should take, for example, the prophet Amos and use the plumb line to show how far we have fallen short of God's standards. And you know a plumb line, what does a plumb line do? Once you drop it, it's got a weight at the end. Anything in that plumb line, close to that plumb line, will, will show you whether that, that next item is crooked or straight, right? How do I know if a wall is crooked or straight? I use a plumb line to do it. How far have I moved away from God's standards? It'll show my crookedness. So be self-aware so you can identify your strengths and your weaknesses. Every strength God gives us, there's a corresponding weakness. I used, used to say to young guys when they go off to Bible college and ministry, I says, be careful about your strengths and your weaknesses because you're going to be tempted on both ends. And either one could be destructive if you give into it and not balance it out by the word of God. So let's take, for example, let's take, for example, uh, that you have the gift of service. Servers love to help people. They often work in social settings where they support other people. They're most comfortable when they have something to do. Now, the sin that so easily can trip them up, usually, usually something lurking underneath the surface, the surface of their being is a great fear to be needed. In their innate fear of not being needed sometimes makes it impossible for them to discern if they are actually helping people or draining people. They are actually helping people or manipulating others to get what they want. So they give the appearance that they are caring for people when in reality they are filling their own selfish need, and they really don't really care for people. So that could be, see, these are subtle things. That it could be a strength that someone has to serve, yet at the same time there is this temptation to slip into something that is going to take you and move you off balance. There's this drift into sin. So there, how do we balance those kind of things when, when uh, these particular subtle Things come into our life or we recognize them. Well, we have to go back to the clarity of Scripture. For example, here's a Scripture that can help in that area. It says, do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. In the world. In other words, if you are someone who is a server, make sure your first priority is serving God and not people. Also, understand that your reward comes from God and not others. You may never get the reward or the response from people that you may want. Matter of fact, you usually don't. And then don't complain. Don't complain that things aren't going your way. Because I don't, I don't remember if complaining is a fruit of the Spirit. I, I don't remember if I saw that in Scripture. Have you? But why is there so much complaining? So in other words, if you're easily tempted to complain, well, then you better take care of that. Because that is a fleshly response to the things going on in your life and not a godly response. So it needs to be put to death. It needs to be laid aside. Okay, let's again consider someone who is an achiever. Achievers love to overcome challenges and perform for others. At best, they're motivated to grow to, and to be stretched and to learn. They love that. Achievers want to make an impact. And they can be tempted to live for the image that they portray and end up idolizing their own performance while craving applause and recognition. So then the sin that tends to trip them up is the sin of pride. 
They become preoccupied with their own image and success. And many achievers, the reason why they're achievers is they're very motivated. They have a lot of good ideas, and they, be, they are, in a sense, leaders, and so people follow them. But what happens is that they crave more of the applause and the following, which fills their pride, and they don't recognize that, and so they end up going off balance. And that becomes that sin that so easily entangles them. Now, how does one hedge against such a strong desire to accomplish great things without falling into the sin of pride? Well, again, we come back to the clarity of Scripture, and we consider a passage like Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 5, where it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Man, is that foreign. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus. See, there's the scriptural clarity. This is how I uh, prevent, this is how this person prevents themselves from slipping in and getting caught and entangled in the sin of pride. Maybe the Lord endowed you with a good intellect. And you tend to be a good thinker. You're a thinker. On the the spectrum, you're a thinker. Thinkers want to know things. They want to know everything. They tend to be the investigators, the scientists, the inventors, right? They love to learn and discover. Nothing wrong with those things. Those are the strengths, right? However, most of the time, thinkers tend to be introverts. They don't need to be around others. They like their own space. They enjoy long hours of solitude, sometimes days of solitude, maybe even months of solitude. They love to win arguments. So the sin, very subtle, that can easily trip them up is lack of love. They don't love people. They're insensitive to others, and they tend to have a low need of community or connection with people. They don't need those things to to survive. See, the problem is we weren't created to fly solo as Christians. Have you noticed that? Living in America even feeds that kind of thinking in a worse way. See, God has designed his church as a community. And part of growing spiritually is the mutual interaction of giving to others and receiving from others. It's the back and forth thing within the community that's part of the means of grace God's given us to actually grow us. We cannot grow spiritually in a healthy way without being connected with other people. We can't be. It's not going to happen. That's not God's plan. Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. What is it? If you have love for one another. It's, he doesn't say there if you love one another. He says if you have love for one another. If if you if you are showing that love for one another, so see again this subtle shift from having a strength and then this strength has a corresponding weakness to it, and that's the subtle part of being pulled into this sin that so easily entangles me. Thinkers also struggle with the concept of faith. Thinkers like to reason things out, but reason has a stopping point because reason cannot resolve everything. And if it doesn't, then one can't go any further. And that's where frustration comes in. So thinkers tend to have a hard time practicing prayer. A hard time practicing prayer. However, faith in God 
can take one another step, and consistency in prayer expresses one's dependence on God who is sovereign over all things, trustworthy, and deeply cares for his children. So those are the things that need to be examined because did you ever think that prayerlessness is a sin? It is a sin. Wasting time, the 168 hours God gives us in a week, how much of that is wasted time? Sitting behind media and wasting your time. When you haven't read the word that day, when you haven't meditated upon truth that you've been learning that day, you've done none of those things. See, God's going to convict us of those things because they are important for us so we don't get pulled into these sins that entangle us, entrap us. Maybe the Lord made you a loyalist. Loyalists love to be part of a great team. When the chips are down, you can depend on them. If anything, they help everyone else become better. The downside of the loyalists is that they can become cynical when they feel let down. Sometimes they perceive God to be hard to please. So then the sin that easily besets them is the sin of fear. They're afraid to do something for the Lord. In Matthew 25, Jesus told three servants who were each given a sum of money to invest. The first two invested wisely, bringing profit to their master and pleasing him. But the third, afraid of failing and incurring the master's displeasure, buried his talent in the ground. And the lesson learned from the Lord's parable is that God reserves his harshest judgment not for those who try and fail, but for those who fail to try because they give into fear. They don't understand the way God's made them, and so they're afraid to do things, and then they don't do things. Fear is a great motivator to stop you in your tracks. It's, it's got a good sense to it, but it also has a bad sense to it. Someone estimated that there are 365 fear knots in Scripture. That's one for each day. This one right here, though, is one, one of them. It says in Isaiah 41.10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with all my, my righteous with my righteous right hand. So that's one of them. And what is that doing there? It's dispelling the fear that a lot of us would have, not just somebody who would be a loyalist. A lot of us are afraid of things. And because we're afraid of things, we don't do things that God may want us to do. All right? The best thing, like even when it comes to evangelism, right? Uh, when we have the, the mall ministry and we go, we talk to people, we don't know who's going to walk up to the table and talk to us. And sometimes I guarantee it, some people do not go to the mall ministry because they're afraid to talk to someone. I understand that fear. Every time I go, I'm afraid. But the only way to do evangelism is dive in. Don't think about it. Just obey it. And God uses what you know, and you will actually amaze yourself to come to the place where, wow, I didn't know I can actually communicate the gospel to someone and share Christ with somebody, and they listen to me. And you walk away amazed and excited, and that begins to dispel the fear. So see, these subtle shifts from someone's strength leading into some their weakness, and then, of course, the sin that entangles them, and they begin to recognize that, and they begin to lay it aside and put it to death. Or maybe one last thing is that maybe somebody, uh, maybe you're a peacemaker. P 
peacemaker, we need peacemakers in the church because they like to reconcile people in order to maintain harmonious relationships. However, they tend to suffer from terminal niceness and at times are inclined to seek peace at any price, avoiding taking the necessary risk in order to accomplish true unity. Their slide into a sinful pattern is usually because of their undue attachment to comfort and security. They don't like the resistance. So the sin that easily besets them is close, so close to them that sometimes they can't even see what it is, and it could be very the sin of presumption. This is one sin that David asked God to point out to him because it is so difficult at times to detect. Presuming something is or is not what it ought to be or what God actually said. Lord, this is what David said in this psalm. He says, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep me, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. So, of course, he went to the Lord, asking the Lord, Lord, when this happens in my life, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm entrapped by this, point it out to me, let me see it, so I, I don't go down this road of presumptuous sin, because it's such a dangerous road to be on, presuming you're doing what God wants you to do when it's not what God wants you to do. So, all these things... Christians must learn to recognize their own pattern of sin because each category of sin has its own hidden temptations. Recognizing your particular pattern of sin lets you know what you need to work on. Actually, knowing other people's patterns of sin helps you to empathize with them and aid your fellow Christian in their area of struggle and doing it in a gracious and a non-judgmental way. And why do you do that? Because you know you're a sinner too and you're struggling with some things and they're struggling with different things and you help each other out. That's why Peter says love covers a multitude of sins. Right? We lay those things aside for the sake of the health of the body so we can enable people to get out from the entanglements of their sin and get on running the race in the way that they ought to. So I hope you see how the enemy can take advantage of your strengths and weaknesses. The devil is a slanderer who deliberately advances his false charges against God and his people. He harasses, he hinders, he sifts, he accuses. That's what he does. He lies. He knows what works and has many techniques in his bag of tricks. And here are some examples that we should think about. And, of course, this one quote here, this uh, is, is something to consider, that sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. Sin holds out to us some promise of pleasure and, or happiness. And of course, all those things are leading down the path of just lies. That's what it ends up being. So if we consider just a list of things, not all the things, but let's, let's say his or her fault is love for money. What will Satan do? He will make available all kinds of opportunities to make money, to have your stuff, and then he will turn your heart to love that more than God. Of course, Scripture teaches us that we, the corresponding Scripture is the weapon of truth we use against his wiles and his, his tripwires and, and his potholes and all those kind of things. And then, of course, a quick temper. Somebody who has a quick temper, he will find you friends to egg you on until your temper gets the best of you and you throw reason to the wind and act on your murderous tendencies. 
And then we consider a scripture like Proverbs 14, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Or maybe it is the sin of lust. If it is, he will make available to you enough pictures and images to destroy your pure mind and warp your view of God's creation and even that of the institution of marriage. He will do that because he is destroyer. That's what he wants to do. But the advice that Paul told the church in Thessalonians is that for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessels in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Or someone is given, again, to the sin of pride. He will tempt you to to be filled with the sense of your own importance and have people around you flatter you until you see yourself wiser than God until your ears are closed close to any sound advice or counsel. Of course, Proverbs chapter 8 tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogance, and the evil way, and the perverted mouth. God says, I hate that. I hate it. Or maybe it's in uh, the weakness of an unguarded tongue. You talk too much. He will provide enough people and situations to put your... Push your buttons so you will always have something to say even though you don't know what you're saying and then you will sin. Your sin will be unavoidable. Like Proverbs 10.19 says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. He who restrains his lips is wise. You talk too much, you're going to sin. Guarantee it. Gossip. It could be bitterness. He will tempt you to justify your bitterness until you sufficiently grieve God's spirit, leaving you controlled by the flesh alone. And, of course, Paul wrote in Ephesians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed to the day of redemption and let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then this, this last one, these are only a list to give you an example, but that of prayerlessness. Maybe your weakness is prayerlessness. He will convince you that prayer accomplishes nothing. Of course, James says a lot about that. He says, you have not because you ask not. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. How important is prayer? I think any pastor would say that one of the main struggles in the church is to get people to meet for prayer. Maybe I should ask people this. You weren't at prayer meeting this week. How come? When you stand before God someday and... He says to you, you know, you could have been at prayer meeting. You could have been at that, those times of study of the word of God, and you weren't. Why not? Why weren't you there? I pray that our excuses are good ones. But I think most of the time it's because Satan has thoroughly convinced people that it's really not that important. Let somebody else do it. I don't have to be part of that equation. And of course, again, it's a big lie. So in other words, what lie are we believing as believers? Or which truth are we shunning? What lie are we believing or what truth are we shunning? It's got to be one or the other. And see, this is the way that we, we begin to detect where we get entangled with sin that we're self-aware about our strengths and weaknesses and that we begin to identify what's really going on on in our life. So this second way of resisting the adversary is by discerning your strengths, weaknesses, and tendencies towards sin and then fighting against 
him, the tempter, with the word of God. That's how we do it. And we're going to look further into that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I do thank you for looking at the word of God, Lord, in a way and finding ample uh, scriptures that address all kinds of sins that we can commit in our life. I pray, Lord, as we consider those and as we consider ourselves, that you would make us a people who know how to come up against the enemy by resisting him in the body of truth that has been delivered to us in the word of God. And that, Lord, also that we can resist him by looking at ourselves and seeing how you created us and seeing our weaknesses and strengths and then our tendencies towards sin and then, Lord, learning the word of God enough to fight against them, to lay them aside with the truth until the enemy leaves us. Lord, I pray that you strengthen us in this way so we can be a people who truly are honoring you in our daily living. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.